Hello and welcome to Note Doctors Summer Shorts. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In these short episodes, we will be sharing with each other and all of you musical examples and teaching tips covering a wide range of topics. So if you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome back to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. Well, we have made it to our last episode of our summer book club where we have been reading Philip Yule's On Music Theory and Making Music More Welcoming for Everyone. Uh, listeners, if you've been listening and reading along, hopefully you've been getting something out of this book. We certainly have. Um, there's so much richness uh, in this text. And in this chapter, or in this episode, we're going to be talking about the final chapter, which is chapter six, and then the outro. And uh, then kind of closing with our kind of final thoughts on the book. And so before, though, we get into talking about uh, chapter six, which is discussing music theory's kind of anti-Semitism, uh, I wanted to come back to just one thing that we didn't get a chance to talk about uh, from the last episode, which was uh, on chapter four and chapters four and five, where Yule talks about how we should approach uh, kind of analyzing popular music, uh, especially you know as white music theorists, or or just kind of with as we are. Uh, living in this white racial frame of music theory, how, how we should go about taking a popular music example and, and using it in our class. And um, what are your thoughts on that, guys? Well, I'm sure a lot of you have heard at recent SMTs, AMS conferences, et cetera, that they will often read, whether it's a presenter or a, or a presiding chair of a session, will often read a land acknowledgement agreement that, you know, acknowledges, you know, this land was taken from whoever, indigenous peoples. And uh, it's kind of a nice way of starting out the session by acknowledging those facts. And then mm -hmm. what is a nice recommendation, I think, for those of us to think about that are teaching popular music in some way, shape, or form is consider a kind of land acknowledgement, quote unquote, or, you know, musical source acknowledgement or historical acknowledgement of how popular music, um, you know, has roots in um, blackness and that, uh, I really need to word this better. This Phil is so good at wording these things so well, I'm <laughs> not, is. but I'm trying to extemporize, but, you know, acknowledging the history and the appropriation mm -hmm. and things like that. Exactly. You know, like I know I've taught like the lion sleeps tonight in class and that you know that's an example where you know the person who wrote that song is like in poverty um in the southern part of africa and you know here's people over here in america making millions of dollars off of it and completely stealing this this lion song and just acknowledging that is really important i don't know that's my take absolutely First of all, like making those voices that have been silenced in the history of that music unsilenced, you know, yeah. unmuted, so to speak, because so much of it was appropriated um, or the person who actually wrote it or recorded it first was eliminated from the history. This happens in jazz history, too. And I think one of the things that I really took away from this book over and over was that 
in music theory, we've been eager to say that the context is not what we're talking about. We're just talking about the music, right? Mm -hmm. And that is the white racial frame at play. Um, trying to remove the context in which the music was written is not a proper way to analyze something. And so just being aware of context and acknowledging it and speaking about it as a part of analytical treatment of something, I think is really important. Yeah. We humans can't escape our own context. No. Yeah, we think we can <laughs> look at a piece of music without context, right? Yeah. It's That's ridiculous. a great point. Um, yeah. One of the lessons that I like doing is when we get in popular music is looking at Hound Dog. Um, so mm. it's made famous by Elvis Presley, uh, but it was originally recorded by Big Mama Thornton, who was a black uh, kind of blues, early rock and roll kind of singer. Um, interestingly enough, that song was written by her, or written, written for her by Lieber and Stoller, who were a white, two white guys who were a, a songwriting duo back then. So you have this interesting, these two white guys taking a kind of black blues form and then uh, writing it for a black artist. And then the original lyric is, it's not about a dog at all. It's about this basically uh, <laughs> a guy who's a jerk and, you know, um, you know, and she's like, you know, I don't want you around here anymore. I don't want you wagging your tail anymore around here anymore. Right. And so there's this like, you know, innuendos going on there. And then though it's, uh, appropriated by white artists, um, Elvis being the most famous, but not the first, and they changed the lyrics to make it into this, you know, a dog, basically, which makes no sense. Like, I thought you were high class. Like, that makes no sense to be talking about a dog, right? You never talk about a dog being high class, and yet that's how it changes. And even if you Google, you know, hound dog, it comes up as song by Elvis Presley. Like, that's mm -hmm. the first thing, right? And so, I mean, that's just a good example of this erasure of blackness from mm -hmm. this song. And so, and so that's, that's one thing that I've done. I, I, I need to do more of that, but I thought that's helpful because then you can play, you know, you can see uh, on YouTube, there's performance videos of Big Mama Thornton singing it. It's a very different style than the Elvis Presley and then kind of talking about, talking about those things. But I think you're right, Jen, the context we can't ignore anymore. We have to acknowledge mm -hmm. it. I mean, I think in some ways that's his point. We were never ignoring it. We were just like putting this like white male racial frame on it and claiming that that rules everything, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, we just weren't acknowledging it. It was always there. We yeah. just weren't saying mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Yeah. So if we're going to be using popular music, we need to, you know, not just acknowledge, but also goes a step further with engaging with, you know, scholars, um, you know, BIPOC scholars who are doing this work, uh, because he also challenges us to not just acknowledge, but also move past those theoretical frameworks that are basically have been created by whiteness, which I think is the hardest part, you know, for me, it's like, well, how do I talk about this music without using Roman numerals or, you know, the, all these tools that have come out of, you know, our or white racial frame, I think that's the more challenging thing for me is, and that I have to do more work in is being able to learn, you know, these different ways yeah. of uh, uh, explaining and analyzing music that are uh, uh, different than what I've experienced and what I've been trained in. Totally, totally. And kind of tagging on, kind of leading us into chapter six, you know, you have these composers that people think of anti-Semitism. A lot of times they might think of like Wagner 
He's but the only one, right? We're ben? only five. Right. He's, right. he's right. the only one, right? He's the bad one. We all know that, Ben. We can move on. <laughs> yeah, but man, once you read this chapter six, I mean, definitely for me, it changed my perspective and kind of opened up some new lenses to view this and say, whoa, you know, it's not just Wagner, basically. It's, it's, it's a big, big point that's raised here, but... Um, you know, Tchaikovsky and a lot of other composers that are mentioned in this chapter, I really encourage everyone to dig in and look at some of the people that you're probably teaching this year in your class. They're in this chapter, chances are. And I think one of the the arguments that's used often, and, and Yule pushes back on this, is that well, that's just how it was, right? That's right. just the product of their time. Right, right product right. of their time, right? <laughs> you know, who can blame them for being anti-Semitic? Everybody was. But that's not a good answer, right? Well, and if that were the answer, we could still say that now. Like, we still yeah. we still are in a white <laughs> racial frame, so are we all supposed to just be products of that, or are we supposed to acknowledge it and try to move on from it, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. there were always people who believed differently, you know, about mm-hmm. both race, about Judaism, about gender. There have always been people who believed differently. So to, yeah, to yeah. blame history rather than people is not really right. I'm curious as to, I didn't claim this, but did either of you while reading this chapter think like of yourself being in like a future iteration of this book or like, what are people going to look back and say about music theorists on the note doctors or like, you know, how, yeah. how we had acknowledged in our time, you know, I, I think about that a lot when I was reading this of how, mm-hmm. how we were, how our generation of theorists or certain people in our generation of theorists are going to be perceived and like how we're kind of painting our 2023 picture of, of music theory or what is music theory yeah. in 23, 23 and how we, how we shape that. It's like a really hard question to wrestle mm-hmm. with. It's really mm-hmm. gotten me thinking a lot. But it's an important one to think about how we have our mindset, especially just going into this school year now that we're in August. You know, you really want to think about your mindset and how are you framing your course materials? What, you know, how are you teaching that Tchaikovsky example? What, what are you going to say? Mm-hmm. You know, what is your front loading that you're going to do? Or what is your kind of context that you're going to present for that particular example? How much are you going to use Roman numerals this year versus what you did last year, you know? Um, yeah. that's something that I've been thinking about a lot and I don't know if I have like a hundred percent correct answer to it per se, but I think just thinking about it is at least one step, you know? Yeah. It's at least a start for sure. No, I've had similar thoughts of like, you know, we can't know what future people are going to look at and think that we got right or wrong necessarily, but we, you know, it's the whole when you know better, you do better kind of thing. Like no one's perfect. Everyone's going to make mistakes and actually acknowledging that all of us have like ingrained systemic racism, you know, misogyny, all of those things is an important part of this process. Mm. You know, seeing it in yourself, like when he says the only two people I've ever called racist are Schenker and Phil Yule. It's, you know, it's seeing it in yourself and seeing the ways that, like, it impacts you and things you've thought. That's a critical step. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there needs to be this level of responsibility about, you know, being better, but also having this 
um, I guess, humility as well, where, mm-hmm. yeah, we, we're going to do as, the best we can, hopefully, but we're, going, we're not going to reach the pinnacle. We're not, <laughs> mm-hmm. not going to be perf- perfect. And I think that can help. At least it helps me to think about um, others that may not be where I'm at you know, thinking like, well, you know, if only they would think like me, because then I'm the enlightened (laughs) one or something like that, you know. Um, But, you know, looking, thinking, you know, 50, 100 years from now, the the things that I think I'm doing right may be entirely wrong, or people are going to see things that I never saw um, in my teaching, or not that they're going to be talking about me in 100 years, but you know what I mean. And, And so I think that gives you this kind of sense of humility as well where yeah. like okay i i don't have it all together and um i need to do better than i am now but i'm not going to you know and that helps me not to judge others as much i think like so often we want everything to be like clean or nice or easy <laughs> and as i was reading the book over and over again i was like the reality is that like being a human is just a messy messy thing like one of the one of the ones in this chapter that hit me really hard was Bach, right? Yeah. Like he talks about anti-Semitism in St. John's Passion, I think it is. And I was like, mm-hmm. not Bach. Like, <laughs> Soli, not Soli him Deo too. Gloria. Come on. Like, well, and you know, like just we we have composers, we have, you know, public figures, we have friends and loved ones up on pedestals that we have made, and everyone mm-hmm. is messy. And no one is above being impacted by, like, these ideas. Yeah. And including us. Yep. Mm -hmm. You know, so. So true. Yeah. So true. Yeah, Jen, you both, you and I, especially going to a Christian undergrad. Yes. Bach was, you know, was the composer. I mean. The model. Yeah. The model, right? You know, Soli Deo Gloria after every one of his compositions, right? You know. know, No one, no one is clean right like yeah. everyone is a little bit messy yeah mm-hmm. yeah right totally totally so on to a path forward and there you go it is in the outro if you're looking for a path forward the outro is the place to start what are y'all's thoughts on the outro i you know phil has found a way in this book to remain so hopeful and yeah. so like kind and gentle to his majority white colleagues who are the audience for this text and i just appreciated that you know like you leave this book with a feeling of like here's some stuff i can do mm-hmm. and not a feeling of like what do i do now <laughs> which right. is sometimes how you feel when you read, you know, I've done a lot of reading around anti-racism and occasionally I've set those books down and been like, it's all too heavy. There's, I don't know what to do now. Like I agree and I see, I see it and I don't know what to do, but Phil, there's so many like clear steps to be taken. And that's a real kindness that he did. I think in this last chapter in the outro. Yeah, this one quote um, he has, I think, near the beginning of that chapter really resonated with me. He says, the solution is not finding the one BIPOC theorist who conforms to the white male frame of the field, but rather the solution lies in changing the framing of the field itself. And I feel Mm -hmm. like that's what his book is doing. It's, It's 
making us realize that there is this frame and just inserting you know these token uh, pieces by black composers or these genres is not doing anything to really disrupt the problem that that lies at the heart of this and so it's really just changing the framing of the field itself um, which kind of leads him to these recommendations that he makes i think he has 24 of them um to help totally reframe this the field of music theory um and so any of those um recommendations resonate with you all a lot of them yeah you know the piano thing hit me hit me too <laughs> i've talked a lot about how i use these like mini pianos in my class and um as i was thinking about it reading this i thought you know there's other ways for students to demonstrate the skills i'm looking for without using a piano there might be sometimes where they could sing those skills. I, I use the pianos because so many of my students are singers and they don't have that like external to their body way of representing notes or a scale or a chord. Um, and it, they often find it really helpful, but maybe some of them are guitar players. They could spell chords while playing them on the guitar. There's no reason why they have to just play like Roman numeral one, C E G, you know, they could do that on a guitar. It doesn't have to be on a keyboard. So I actually have changed I have keyboard quizzes in my written theory classes, and I have actually changed them to be performance quizzes and looked for ways that students can demonstrate the same skills using a performance medium that is most comfortable for them, like giving them an element of choice in that process. And I anticipate that a lot of them will probably pick the piano anyway or a keyboard anyway, but, you know, why not make it easier or less daunting or, you know, more in their already existing set of tools. Yeah, I love that. And I think recently, uh, I think it was Justin London had a chapter about that, how we're so focused on just singing in piano as like these just two ways of demonstrating, you know, and even, you know, in our proficiency requirement, you know, it's not like everyone has a saxophone proficiency requirement, you know. <laughs> I mean, you think, if you put that out there, it sounds ridiculous, but then yet we are, like, having this piano uh, proficiency requirement. or you true. know, Even when you look at NASM, you know, same type of deal. And uh, I've thought about that a lot. I, I've thought about, could I have everyone in my class bring the instrument to class? For my section, that would be a little insane because it would be 150. <laughs> It's a big band. How many of those are not in C? I thought, oh man, I'm going to run into a problem. But I have done little um, ensembles, like, you know, I would have the euphoniums do a thing, or I'd have a a group of saxophones do a thing, and I would kind of go around the different studios and and things like that. I thought maybe I should be doing more of that too. Um, And I didn't have the the keyboard quizzes in my uh, curriculum like Jen did, but... You know, just brainstorming ideas of how to get out of that piano and singing, piano or singing, piano or singing all the time, you know. Right. Singing is not that comfortable for some people, too. I mean, singing can be a a roadblock. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, my students are mostly singers. So there's that. But, yeah, (laughs) that's why, I, you know, they lean heavily that way because we don't have an instrumental program. Go ahead. You know, one of my summer projects was um, revamping my uh dictation homeworks for um mm. for one of my oral skills classes and um so i spent the summer writing all these dictations and doing things and i 
recorded a number of my colleagues playing dictation melodies for dictation and um because up to this point it's always been piano or like keyboard sounds every one of their homework is keyboard sounds um and so so this semester in all skills four we're gonna have flute and trombone dictations and violin and clarinet and bass clarinet we even have an accordion uh we have nice. some piano still and i mean because you can't do harmonic dictation very easily um <laughs> Uh, but I did think about maybe I could try doing like a string quartet maybe next summer. Um, but I'm super eager to try these out on these students, especially since they've been through three semesters or even four semesters if they're an intro class of dictations with just piano sounds. And now they're going to be having dictations with all these other instruments. Are they going to find it more difficult? Are they going to find it easier? Um, what are the, the band students going to think, mm. right? Because we have a bunch of band students, and are they going to be like, oh, yeah, I love hearing the flute and the trombone and all these things because that's what I hear every day in, in wind symphony or something like that, rather than this piano sound. So I'm super intrigued about that. And also the fact that when we get away from the piano, we get into other musical aspects that are... Um, important like timbre articulation articulation is really not something i mean you obviously you can have staccato you know things but like the articulation uh palette is quite small on a piano compared mm -hmm. to a violin or a trombone so i have some different recordings of some of the players doing different articulations like tonguing everything versus slurring so maybe i'll try playing those and seeing if people can hear those things and so mm -hmm. um, i'm super excited cool. but but um, it's something that as I'm a pianist too. Like, so it's the piano is so easy for me to fall back into. And, um, you know, it's hard for me to imagine, you know, a good theory teacher that doesn't play the piano well. But that's just my own bias. Like, that's just yeah. me because, like, I can just go in and play and it's so, it works so easily for me. Um, but that's just, that's just a personal bias. And that's just what I'm comfortable with. Um, right. So, yeah. And I'm not a great pianist. I can play. I have like decently functional skills, but it right. was never Same. my primary instrument. And it was hard for me to imagine that too. Like mm -hmm. just, <laughs> I mean, some of it, again, it's a natural, but I started piano lessons at like four. So mm -hmm. I have played, as long as I remember, as long I learned to read music around the same time I learned to read words. Mm. So I don't have a memory of that not being something I did. Well, it's funny. Um, I play, I probably play the least of the three of us, I probably play the least piano. But when I'm teaching a class, I rarely will play trumpet, which is my instrument. <laughs> right, and it's like, that's more. evidence right there. It's like, <laughs> piano's definitely not my instrument. Like, I play okay enough to get by and things, you know? But I just kind of assumed, well, I'm not gonna have my trumpet for theory teaching. I'm gonna have a piano, clearly. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like, there we are, in practice, doing exactly what, you know, yeah, kind of subconsciously fitting into that. Well, and as you were saying that, Paul, I was thinking like, uh, maybe you two have had this experience as well. I feel like it's a universal experience where you do dictation in class as a college, you know, freshman or sophomore, and then you go and you listen to something, maybe even for another class, you're listening to like a Brahms symphony and you're like, I'm having a really hard time, like <laughs> figuring out this melody or figuring uh -huh. because the timbres are so different and I've yes. only been trained to do this one thing. Like it, it takes real focus and effort to make that transfer the first time or two that you have to yeah. do it. 
So yeah, we're we're doing a disservice because we're really narrowing the field of music that our students can interact with if they mm. don't have access to all these other timbres. The light bulb moment for me was when I had a student who plays the bassoon come in and play a melodic dictation. They're, the students' brains exploded because they're like, "This sounds high and low at the same time. Like, where, where, where do we even write the first note down?" Because it was such a rich and unique timbre. They've heard bassoon before, but being able to think about well, what what note is that, where is that, it was it was so different for them. So I was like, "This is a problem. I need to yeah. do something about this." Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will say changing the subject, but maybe importantly, one of the most probably overtly German-centric parts of the recommendations is the graduate foreign language requirement. Yeah. I think we've all encountered this in our studies, many of us. And uh, my goodness, you know, a lot of times not as, it's not just a, you know, European language that's required. A lot of foreign language requirements will spell out German is required. And then some people have to take semesters upon semesters of German. I got lucky. I took two semesters of accelerated German. And it was just the writing and translation part. Um, so do I speak German very well? No. Nine. But, <laughs> you know. I took five semesters and I don't really either. <laughs> I took all this Spanish. Yeah. in high school and I feel like I do speak Spanish okay and I can understand Spanish when I watch TV and that does you no good and even that is a European language and you think wait a minute where do we go wrong here you know we got I mean this is one of the things that stuck out to me as very very particularly German centric and maybe seconded by French maybe is what's mentioned in recommendation mm -hmm. number seven is what I'm looking at yeah that's those are the two I took what, are, what two did you take Ben I took Italian as my second mm. um, but I didn't take any courses on it I just did the uh, audio tapes 30 minutes a day you know kind of yeah. Duolingo style or Pimsleur style um, and I did okay with it you know I did yeah okay I did bene not molto bene but bene <laughs> 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 You are so bilingual. <laughs> You're code switching like crazy. <laughs> I won't switch to Czech. I don't want to leave people out. I'm learning Czech now. Um, but yeah, you know, it's just like even, even if you take European languages, it seems that not even those are treated as, okay, you can study any of these languages. Or if you, you know, if you grew up speaking Thai, one of my TAs grew up speaking Thai, and it's like, wow, what an asset, you know, to have like, a person right. who can read Thai and like study Thai music and wow, that's so cool. But then like, and you look at the requirements on paper a lot of times, it's like, now this person has to go and take German? What? You know, <laughs> I mean, to me, it right. seems like an artificial barrier and kind of a policy that really could use some revisiting and revising both. Well, it takes me back to when we talked to Lee and what she found in her work, of course, was that like the people who said, yes, the language requirement was useful were the people who used it in their research. <laughs> so really like perhaps it should be some later part of your coursework after you have a sense of what you might want to research. 
you know, if mm-hmm. you're going to research something where you don't have to read in a foreign language at all, maybe you'd be better off learning like recording or computer languages or, you know, something completely else, you know, that is much more relevant to what you want to study and what you want to write about. Yeah. The fact that you have to choose, you have to learn your languages before your research project is just another way that right racial frame stays intact. Because if you're only studying, having to study those languages, oh, what are you going to do your main research on? Well, I only know how to read German and French. Well, I guess I'll do German and French music, right? right? Like that's, that's, and no one is intentionally doing that, right? But that's a byproduct of this white racial frame is that, you know, if, if your language requirement comes before your research interest, you're going to then go into those languages. But if you flipped it around and maybe had your research interest first, then, okay, what language or no language at all do you need to um, study? Then that opens up a whole host of areas of research. Hmm. Right. If you're doing a PED dissertation, maybe you're taking a bunch of like educational psychology classes or Mm. educational research classes or, you know, things like that, that are much more relevant. So I think just providing a lot more choice across the board, you know, there's probably still going to be people who need to learn German to research what they want to research. But Mm -hmm. there's also how many times while we've been reading this book, have we said, like, I need to learn so much more about all of this (laughs) other you know, mm-hmm. that research still needs to be done. And, you know, we're not making space for it yeah. with requirements like this. No, I think people think, oh, it's just a language requirement or, you know, it's just PhD students. But like the impact of it is a lot deeper because you think those mm-hmm. PhD students potentially are going to be like, you know, the professors and like with research areas, just like just like y'all are saying. I mean, the impact of that is actually pretty far reaching. I would, I would say, um, just every little policy, if you go through every single one, you think, well, how many of these policies have these far reaching impacts? You know, um, a lot of them do, but it seems small, but you know, it has, has a lot of Mm -hmm. deep impact on the field and the way the field is shaped for the next, you know, 10 to 20 years, especially. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's not inevitable. I think that's one of these things that, one of the things that's, I think about with this book is that he reveals that the way where we are at is not this inevitable like place that it has to be like every one of these decisions were made by humans right and so they're contingent meaning that we can change where we want to go it's not like this is how it has to be you know the mm-hmm. you know perhaps the reason why there's so much Shankarian analysis and study is because all the theorists had to study German. Well, then what are they going to study? Well, German theorists. Who's the best one? Schenker, right? And so (laughs) is Schenker required because it's the best or just because that's what everyone is trained in is trained in German? I don't know. But that's one of his other recommendations. probably real mad at you right now, Paul. Just saying. (laughs) (laughs) He's a composer. Here we go. (laughs) He was a theorist too. I know. Actually, I love Schoenberg. I'll take Schoenberg any day. He wrote a Yeah. Um, But so that's that's one of his other recommendations is not to just get rid of Schenkerian analysis, but to make it uh, optional, right? If someone wants to study that, absolutely, but not making it this requirement. Yeah, Yeah. making sure you're doing a really good front loading of, you know, if you're teaching linear analysis or whatnot to acknowledge that and make sure that you give the proper context and make sure that you do that um, Mm -hmm. in the right way. 
Yeah, it's a really good recommendation too. This is sort of a related thing, but he talks about proficiency exams and entrance exams Mm -hmm. and things like that that are often a part of our kind of music culture. We have one where I work. I oversee. I oversee one where I Mm -hmm. work um, for putting students into theory one versus fundamentals. And I know Ben at UNT, they've done away with fundamentals. All the students start out together in theory one. Um, There's some decent research out there. And I I think I might dig into it a bit at some point this fall, if I can find time, that's always the critical part Um, in the middle of writing our NASM self-study. So there's that, but um, if I can find the time, there's a lot of research on math and remediation and it doesn't work. Students do much better in math if they all just start out together in the same room at the same time, learning the same things. And if some students are behind and don't have the skills they need, they're much more likely to form them alongside these other students. Um, And part of me is like, that's probably also true for music theory. It does create the issue of like the trailing sections. If you don't have a huge program, what are you going to do about the students who fail? Do they now have to wait a whole year, you know, Mm -hmm. basically until they can take the class again? Um, So it creates these other kind of practical problems, but it's worth asking the question of like, what atmosphere are we creating or who are we holding back? Or what is the experience of being a student who is told that you need remediation? And of course I never say it that way. I say like, we want to put you in the class. that's the best fit so that you're the most successful. I also don't, it's not mandatory. So I, when I'm working with a student, I say, this is my recommendation. But if you say, like, I don't care about an easy A, I'm going to work really hard. I will, you know, do what I need to do in theory one, then you can take theory one. And if I have said that theory one is the recommendation, but you're like, oh, I'm not sure I feel scared. You can take Mm -hmm. fundamentals and all of those things do happen. So I do feel at least good about that, that it's not they are not forced to take a class that doesn't count toward their degree. Mm -hmm. Um. And students will kind of voluntarily switch during that first week as well. And we help them with that process too. But is it serving them? I hope so, but I don't know for sure. And this definitely raised more questions along that line for me. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as you, Jen. And so we have a fundamentals and a theory one, but and I do this, I say the same things as, as you do, or, you know, this is the best fit for you where we want you to succeed. And of course, you know, if you're, you're really adamant that theory one, I'm not going to stop you. Um, I'll give my professional opinion on that, but you know, if the research shows that, you know, it's not, it's actually hurting that then some hard decisions are going to have to be made. But the struggle for me is, as you mentioned, the, uh, the lack of a trailing class. So if a student does fail theory one, I don't have enough students to have a theory one then in the spring. Perhaps in the future I will, I don't right. know. So they have to wait a whole year. And that was one right. of the big benefits of changing that we changed. We added the fundamentals a number of years ago is that students were like, oh, thank goodness I failed. Now I don't have to wait a whole year. So I don't know what the solution is for that, but um, 
or just convincing upper administration to let, you know, a class of five make. I don't know. Oh, man. <laughs> sounds That'll impossible. Be That'll be the day. I'm living that right now. I'm living it right now, trying to get ready for fall and I'm having to make tough decisions and it stinks. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I don't know. I mean, anecdotally, the students who go into fundamentals and are in like they're called all sorts of things. The trailing section, mm -hmm. the off semester. It's a terrible <laughs> right. way to put it. <laughs> it um, but, you know, that those students anecdotally are often not as strong. Mm -hmm. And it, it might be easy to say, like, well, duh, like they started out behind or they, you know, so, of course, they're not going to be as strong. But I'm not so convinced anymore that that's really what's going on, you know, that mm -hmm. maybe they they weren't having the same level of rich conversations in those classes or maybe you know like they weren't getting to go as deep because too much time was spent on drill or you know i don't know i don't know what the answer is but yeah i will this say definitely like, oh, made me think sorry. no go ahead i will say that you know since i've been here teaching the core theory classes some of my colleagues have advocated to switch back to and these are may or may not be theory colleagues i'm just talking about in general just in, in mm -hmm. our college music and you know one of my arguments back has always been that some of the best students i've had would have been in the fundamentals and would have been on that separate track or maybe fundamentals track we could call it um and those students may have not had the strongest reading abilities or the things that, you know, those proficiency tests have, you know, highlighted, meaning can you write a scale in the base clef or something, you know, they may have just done treble, but man, are they good at treble or are they good at treble? You know what I mean? But they may have made right. a 50 on the exam <laughs> because they got all the treble stuff right and all the right. base clef stuff wrong. And it's like, take a couple weeks and read some stuff in the base clef and boom, they're like, you know... Yes. The best student yeah. in your class, you know, and I've always had, and maybe it's just because it's a very large sample size from my classes, I've always mm -hmm. had students that have come in and taken a little bit longer at the beginning to get quicker at certain activities, whether that's just, it could be just solfege, it could be reading base clef, it could be um, just uh, writing, you know, like the active taking what's in your head and just writing it on a staff. Any of those activities, they were slower at the beginning, but then, oh my goodness, by the end of the semester, they're some of my best students. Their composition projects are just unreal. And, you know, I'm just, man, I'm so glad that you are not having to then start Theory 1 in the spring, in January. So, but yeah. it's hard because then you do have, like, the flip side is there. You have those people that, you know, it's hard to spend the time to get them caught up in a certain way. So that, that right. is true too. And, and luckily we do have always, you know, the ability to take theory one in the spring as well without, without right. the enrollment issues. So it's, it's tricky. That's such a tricky, 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 tricky issue. Um, well, and you know, again, anecdotally, we all know that when it really comes down to it, what best predicts how the student is going to do is sort of how much resilience they have, how much <laughs> grit, how much grit they have, how hard are they willing to work, and then more so like how stable is their life outside of your class, yes. right? Mm -hmm. All yeah. of these yep. things are factors that are more telling 
probably than mm-hmm. how well they read treble or bass clef on that first day right do you mm-hmm. know ace g or whatever on the bass clef or yeah right <laughs> right mm. Yeah. So you're saying our students have context, just like the pieces of yes. music that we're analyzing. <laughs> totally. Yes, they do. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good takeaway. I like that, Paul. Any other of those recommendations? I mean, we're not going to go through all of them. I think if you're reading along, read each one of them um, and think about them, um, because I think there's so many and we're this is technically a summer short so we're trying to keep it short (laughs) yeah um but any kind of closing closing thoughts kind of well one last one that stuck out to me is when phil mentions the kind of trend that we've seen lately of boycotting conference locations oh yeah in places with political issues where either there's homophobia or you know obvious white supremacy or you know with the recent Roe v. Wade situation, laws that are, you know, harming women, things like that. And he points out how damaging that is. Mm -hmm. You're robbing those economies of things that they need. And often the people who you're most trying to help are the people who you're harming by, you know, not going to those places. And I just remember that when um, SMT was in San Antonio, like those organizers had to work really hard to get the conference to be in San Antonio, hmm. which as a city itself would embrace all of the things that they were upset about. I believe it was LGBTQ things at the time that were um, making them concerned about coming to Texas. But San Antonio in general is a pretty, it's a big city, you know? <laughs> so right. it's, it's not, it's, there's a lot of opinions, a lot of ideas, and it's not necessarily an unsafe place in that, in that way. Um, and I know that's a conversation that has happened a lot and it makes me think about how all of our conferences, many of them are in the winter and they are often in like Minneapolis and Denver. It's freezing cold there guys come to the Mm -hmm. South. It's nice here. It's nice here in November. That's That's my final thought. Texas is, you know, so DBU not is snowy be hosting in November. We're, we're picking up what you're putting down. No. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> it's, that is an interesting thing because it's like speaking to the privilege that, that some folks have, I guess, within, within academia or whatever is like, well, yeah, just come to New York, come to California each time. Um, I mean, I don't, does anyone in those, like, did anyone in the state of Texas be like, no, you shouldn't come here? No. <laughs> I remember being thrilled that I could for once in my life drive to SMT. Yeah. Like I have never any other occasion other than New Orleans been able to drive. And New Orleans is actually a, a fairly long drive. It's like a nine hour mm-hmm. drive, but it's at yeah. least doable. Every other time I've had to fly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean. No, those of us who live here were like, yay, <laughs> just like everyone else. I'm sure the people who live in Minnesota are thrilled when they get to just, you know, go home to their own bed at night. But mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, as we wrap up our first ever summer book club, uh, what are your takeaways? It's been nice to to read an academic book. I know, Jen, you've probably read about 15 books this summer already. Um <laughs> Not all academic, though. Not all academic. But um, I think 
I finished this book and um, immediately started thinking of ways that I can change up my theory classroom. Um, and uh, I think it's, as you mentioned, Jen, he is hopeful and he's doing, you get a sense that he's writing this book out of this sense of hope and sense of love for music theory and just the music theory community. You know, I, I agree. He doesn't, you know, he's not coming down on people. You know, he's so kind, especially in the section where he's going through the ways that he has been kind of ridiculed mm. and, um, and, uh, you know, verbally or, or, uh, abused on email and things like that. Like he, he doesn't come back, you know, at, at those people. And, um, I think that's really commendable. And I think it he's, is. you know, I think, it's a powerful book. I think it's one of those books where we're going to be reading about it. We're going to be reading it in, you know, history of music theory class. Absolutely. You know, I was going to say know, the same thing. Something like that. that. This book is going to be in, in there. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say thank you to Phil Ewell for writing this amazing publication. And I imagine, I can't even imagine undertaking something like this and you did it mm. so well. So, Congratulations on a job well done, and I hope everyone, yeah. everyone is able to read it. Everyone who's yeah. even tangentially involved can can dig their hands in and get some good ideas, fresh perspectives. Absolutely. Thank you, Phil. You just made it to the end of another episode of Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review the podcast, and you can always reach us at notedoctorspodcast at gmail.com with comments, questions, or show ideas. Thanks for listening.